Hello, my name is Elizabeth Giles and I'm a solicitor in Lane Neves Employment Team based in Christchurch and along with me I have Fiona McMillan who's one of our team's partners based in Auckland. Hey Fee, how are you? I'm very good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. So before we get started, we just want to note that the topic we will be covering today is sexual harassment in the workplace and investigations in respect of it. And we do understand that sexual harassment may be a topic that could be difficult for some viewers to hear about. And so if you would like to skip this podcast, that is no problem. Um, feel free to check out one of our others. So when it comes to sexual harassment in the workplace, there are three key pieces of legislation that employers and employees need to be aware of. The first is the Human Rights Act 1993, which provides that sexual harassment is a prohibited ground of discrimination. The second is the Employment Relations Act 2000, which provides that employees may raise a personal grievance against their employers on the grounds of experiencing sexual harassment in the workplace. The third is the Health and Safety at Work Act 2015. This act requires employees sorry, employers, to take steps to minimise or eliminate hazards to employees' health and safety, which does include sexual harassment in the workplace. So Fee, say that an employee wants to bring a personal grievance for sexual harassment against their employer. What are the elements for this claim? Yeah, so there are, there are three main elements that are, that are outlined in the Employment Relations Act. So the first, it has to be language or behaviour that, that's of a, of a sexual nature. Um, the second aspect is it has to be unwelcome or, or offensive to the complainant employee. Mm. Um, and I think the word complainant is really important here because um, it may not be an act or language directed at them personally. It, it may be someone else in the workplace, but uh, this person's decided to make a complaint because they have seen or heard something that, that they weren't comfortable with, even though it wasn't directed at, at them. Um, and then the third aspect of, us, of it is that the language or, or behaviour has had a detrimental effect on the employee's employment, um, job performance or, or their, their enjoyment of the job. Great, thank you. So say an employee does raise a claim of sexual harassment in the workplace, what liability does an employer have? Yeah, so I guess it looks a little bit different depending on the different acts that, that you, you spoke about. Mm -hmm. So um, in relation to the Employment Relations Act, um, the employer is liable for the acts of its employees and agents, um, whether the employer knew or approved of, of what was going on. Um, the Human Rights Act is perhaps a little bit, arguably a little bit wider. Mm. Uh, this is when the alleged um, harasser is a, is a client or a customer mm. um, and um, a complaint has been made in, in writing to that organisation. Uh, at that point an employer um, or a company's got an obligation to investigate um, and if satisfied that that did happen, they've got to take all practicable steps to, to stop it happening again. Great. And are there any defences that an employer could raise? Um, so I guess the, probably the, the main one is despite being liable for the actions of its employees, an employer has a, has a defence that um, it did what it could mm. to, to stop an employee from, from taking the actions concerned. So I guess from a practical perspective, mm. if this organisation had a policy in, in place that 
A, made it very clear that sexual harassment wasn't okay in the workplace and what steps are to be taken after an incident. That, that would assist the employer. Um, if there had been some training around that policy, that would assist with the employer's defence. Or alternatively, if something has happened in the past and the employer's taken some, some steps uh, to, to stop that from happening again, that's going to, uh, to, to assist that employer um, if they're having to, to defend a sexual harassment claim. Great. Thanks, V. So, say hypothetically that an employee has raised a concern with their employer that one of their work colleagues is behaving inappropriately towards them or someone else, like you've mentioned. What should the employer do first? I think, I think the starting point, and I know this sounds really obvious, mm. but I think it's worth a conversation with the complainant as to how they want this to, to proceed. Um, and I know, Lizzie, you've, you've recently been in-house for a, for a client of ours, and I think sometimes in practice, employers get a complaint and they, they rush to, to do what they think is best, but they actually haven't had a conversation with the complainant about how do you want us to deal with it. Mm. Now, if the complainant says, right, I, I want an investigation, I want this to be formal, then the employer needs to start turning its mind to things like suspensions. So do they need to suspend the accused or the respondent while they go through a, through a process? But I, I guess before we move on from that question, and I know once again this sounds a little bit silly, but if a suspension isn't happening, mm. you've still got an obligation to let the, the accused or the respondent know that they've had a complaint against them. And I, I've been involved in a number of investigations where an employer's rushed through a process and the accused has actually found out about this in, in the tea room, that there's this investigation going on about them. So I know it seems silly, but once you've got the go-ahead from the complainant, the first step is actually to let the respondent know that there is a process and what, and what that looks like. Absolutely, rather than them finding out in the tea room. Correct, it? correct. So my second question in respect of this hypothetical, invest, um, hypothetical situation is, does the employer need to put the respondent on notice at the beginning of the investigation that the inappropriate behaviour, so-called, may be considered sexual harassment and so their employment could potentially be in jeopardy. Yeah, and I think this is something that a lot of our employer, employer clients get a little bit torn about because they say to me, well, Fiona, if we tell someone that this could be really bad and they might lose their job at the end, it all sounds really predetermined. Yes. But on the other hand, if I go down a, a process and then at the end I say, right, well, we're thinking about terminating your employment, they're going to turn around and say, well, hang on, this is the first I've heard that this is really serious. So from an employment law perspective, it's always my preference that a, that a respondent or an accused is, is notified from the outset that the worst outcome from all of this is that an investigation concludes that it was sexual harassment and the employer goes through a disciplinary process that might result in the termination of, of their employment. Mm. And I think the key here is, is the language that's used because if a letter says, hey look if our investigation finds that this is sexual harassment, then there'll be a disciplinary process and then you'll be in then your employment will be terminated. Mm. That's all predetermined, yeah. right? But if you make it very clear that no decisions have been made, but these are the steps that, that might occur, mm. um, then you are properly putting that employee on notice. So um, it, it's all about the language, but it's absolutely my preference that, that, the, that the accused is, is put on notice about the worst possible outcome. Absolutely. 
So the third question is, what kind of support can an employer offer to both the respondent and the complainant or potentially complainants during an investigation process? I think one of the key things for me is communication. Mm. People, people get more upset in an already very difficult situation when they don't know what's going on, there's silence, they don't know what the next step looks like. So I think it's really important that everyone knows what the steps are, what the, what the approximate timing is, if, if timing moves or for whatever reason, let, let people know. So I think communication is, is the key. Um, it's really challenging as an employer providing support to parties in this situation because one of your jobs as an employer is you've got to remain neutral from the outset. So you can't be seen to, to pro be providing more support to the complainant mm. um, over the respondent. But what you can do is make it very clear to the parties that um, they're entitled to support and or representation throughout a process. And obviously if you're an organisation that, that um, uses um, EAP services, mm. uh, provide, provide those details to them. Um, so I think that the big one for me is communication because that's when, when people get really, I guess, even more upset in, in during these difficult processes. Of course. So say that the investigation has been undertaken and concluded and the decision maker has determined that the conduct does amount to sexual harassment and so a disciplinary process is undertaken. So usually the decision maker's determination including the outcome of any disciplinary process, is not provided to the complainants due to privacy reasons. But you've also explained that an employer has an obligation to take all practicable steps to stop sexual harassment from occurring in the workplace, and also an obligation to keep employees safe. And you've talked before about the stress of going through an investigation, I guess the psychological impact that it could have on complainants who are essentially waiting for news of what's happening next. So. Presumably the complainants do need some reassurance that something has been done. So how do you balance those competing obligations? Yeah, this, this is really hard and I think in some ways what, what is easy is if, if the accused is no longer in the organisation, whether that's because they've resigned halfway through a process um, or there's been an exit agreement or alternatively the process has gone the whole way and, and, they're, and they're gone, in a lot of ways that can be quite easy for, for the complainant because mm -hmm. they know that something's been done and that that person's gone. Um, what can be more challenging is when the respondent is still in the workplace. Um, and rightly or wrongly, there can be a presumption that that nothing has been has been done. And there's actually a, there's a really interesting decision, not directly on point, but it's um, Thomas and Airways Corporation, and this involved bullying, not not sexual harassment. But there had been an investigation against Thomas. Um, as I said, in relation to bullying, um, he was cleared in that investigation and he wanted his employer, Airways Corporation, to, to announce to the whole workplace that mm. he'd been cleared. Um, and the workplace said, look, we're not going to do that. Um, and the matter went, ended up in the Employment Relations Authority and the authority held that Airways didn't have to, have to um, announce to the world that he'd been cleared. And I... I think from an employment law perspective that's correct, mm -hmm. but I, I do have some sympathy for Mr Thomas in, in that Absolutely. situation. 
But I guess that's in relation to the accused. What we're talking about here is, is a complainant who thinks that nothing has been done. And you're completely right, Lizzie. I think um, an employer can go as far as to say, look, we've been through a process with, with the accused. Um, we can't tell you the outcome of, of that, but we can reassure you that this matter has been dealt with inappropriately. But I think if you're getting pushback at that point from the complainant to say, look, this isn't good enough, um, I don't think you've done enough, I think an employer at that point needs to turn it back to the complainant and say, look, our obligation to w was to run a process, we've done that, we think that this environment is now safe. If you don't think it is, what can we do for you to make it a safe environment? And, and I guess push them a little bit. Um, and I know that's that's challenging because depending on the outcome um, of the investigation, they're, they're the victim in all of this. Um, but if you're comfortable with your processes and you've gone as far as you can from an employment law perspective and a health and safety perspective, I, I don't know what, what more uh, you can do. So as I said, arguably it's easier for employers when the accused ends up out of the organisation for whatever reason as opposed to, to staying in it and, and that can be really challenging for employers to work through. Absolutely, there's a lot of implications either way. Correct, 100%. Alright, well thank you Fee very much, we very much appreciate your time and it hasn't been the easiest of topics but definitely is food for thought. Wonderful, thank you. Thanks.